Welcome back to the podcast, 1776, Time to Rise Again, Patriots. I am your host, PissFed. Today we will talk about your constitutional rights and how to fight back with the current situation and state of affairs in our country today against vaccine mandates, mass mandates, mandatory weekly testing if you don't get the vaccine or the violation of having to present a vaccine card or passport, especially for healthcare workers facing the CMS, the Medicaid and Medicare services, and how they're forcing you guys, trying to get you to take it because they said that they will lose funding. I do apologize for the last couple days. I've not been on doing an episode. My normal, regular podcast will be from now on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Let's dive into it, shall we? So, as I stated in the last podcast, you can state incite violations of the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, Section One. read them to you here so you get a better understanding of how to apply these. Also the Fifth Amendment. First Amendment is in the first ten amendments the Bill of Rights, which are absolute, have never been revised, repealed, or redacted. They are a negative Bill of Rights. It's not necessarily rights of yours, guaranteed to you, but stating to the government what are your unalienable God-given rights that they cannot overstep. Amendment 1. Constitution, uh, sorry, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the free speech, the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So no law can trounce on your religious rights, your exercise of it, your freedom of speech, freedom of press to peacefully assemble or to petition your government for a redress of grievances. Now, you ask me, how does that apply to me, PISFAT, if I'm a healthcare worker? subject under a corporate charter 
and the CMS. Well, corporate charters were given to companies, corporations, under governmental power. They are still bound by the Constitution. And if they violate and overstep your constitutional rights, you can dissolve a corporation using the corporate charter. I will go into that more in detail in a little bit. Fourth Amendment. The right of the people to be secured in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. That means that nobody, not an employer or a private business that you're looking to do business with can ask you to show proof of vaccination because you have the right to be secured in your papers. And no employer can demand or coerce under duress that you get a vaccine as a stipulation of employment because you have the right to be secured in your persons. That means you, your body, yourself. Fourteenth Amendment, Section One. All persons born or nationalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state within they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protections of the law. <coughs> now, what does that mean? Well, because of certain amendments in our Constitution came about the Civil Rights Act. Also, the Discrimination Act, which is sets precedence for the EEOC, the ADA, among other things. Now, what is the Civil Rights Act? Well, the Civil Rights Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, 
sex, or national origin. The act prohibits discrimination in public accommodations and federally funded programs, which means the CMS. So therefore, your employer in a healthcare facility cannot discriminate against you based on your religious exemption, regardless of losing Medicaid and Medicare services. Now, what is another thing that you can use? You've got the ADA. Well, the ADA is the American Disabilities Act. What is covered under the American Disabilities Act? An individual with a disability is a person who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits major life activities. So if you are applying for a medical exemption and they deny it, they are discriminating against you under the ADA which a corporation with a corporate charter cannot do. And what disability is covered by the ADA? A physical or mental impairment. So not necessarily just something that can be physically seen. Now you ask, what is the EOC? Well, the EOC is Equal Opportunity Employment Opportunity Commission. How does that work? How does that protect me, you ask? Well, the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is a federal agency that was established via the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to administer and enforce civil rights laws against workplace discrimination. If you are being denied or terminated because of religious or medical exemption, that is workplace discrimination. Now, let's go into the corporate charters a little bit more for you. Some employers seem to have the foolish, ignorant, unlawful notion that they have the privilege to force vaccination as a condition of employment. This is far from the truth. It is extremely unlawful and unconstitutional. You have the right to inform consent under the Nuremberg Code of Informed Consent. You have the right to inform consent and are protected under the Code of Federal Regulations and medical 
against discrimination or unlawful experimentation, medical experimentation. Not to mention that it directly violates the Florence Nightingale pledge that is a modified is a modified version of the Hippocratic Oath. All nurses take this pledge, and the pledge states, "I solemnly pledge myself before God and in the presence of this assembly to pass my life in purity and to practice my profession faithfully. I will abstain from whatever is delirious and mischievous." And I will not take or knowingly minister any harmful drug. I will do all in my power to maintain and elevate the standard of my profession. And I will hold in confidence all personal matters committed to my keeping and all family affairs coming to my knowledge in the practice of my calling. With loyalty will I endeavor to aid the physician in his work and devote myself to the welfare of those committed to my care. Now let's talk about corporate charters. Here's a little back history on corporate charters. And yes, they are held to account under the federal constitution they are not above the law so charters of incorporation corporations cause harm every day why do they their harms go unchecked how can they what we produce, how we work, how what we eat, drink, breathe. How did a self-governing people let this come to pass? Corporations were not supposed to reign in the United States. When we look at the history of our states, we learn that citizens intentionally define corporations through charters, the certif- certificates of incorporation. In exchange for the charter, a corporation was obligated to obey all laws, all laws, to serve the common good and to cause no harm. Early state legislators wrote charter laws and actual charters to limit corporate authority and to assure that when a corporation causes harm, they can get their charters revoked. During the late 19th century, corporations subverted state governments, taking our power to put charters of corporations to the use originally intended. Corporations may have taken our political power, but they have not taken our constitutional sovereignty. I can't stress that enough, people. Citizens are guaranteed sovereign authority over government office holders. Every state still has legal authority to grant 
and to revoke corporate charters. Corporations, large or small, still must obey all laws, serve the common good, and cause no harm. To exercise our sovereign authority over corporations, we must take back our political authority over our state governments. Now, today in our names, state legislators give charters to individuals who want to organize businesses. Our legislators are also support to oversee how every corporation behaves. Corporations cannot operate own property, borrow money, hire and fire, manufacture or trade, sign contracts, sell stocks, sue or be, and be sued, accumulate assets or debts without the continued permission of state office holders. Our right to charter corporations is as crucial to self-government as our right to vote. Both are basic franchises essential tools of liberty. At first, only white men who owned property could vote, and gaining the vote for every person has taken years. But as we were winning that struggle, corporate promoters were taking away our right to have a democratic say in our economic lives. Corporate owners claim special protections under the U.S. Constitution they assert the legal authority over what to make and how to make it, to move money and mountains, to influence elections, and to bend governments to their will. They insist that once formed, corporations may operate forever. Corporate managers say they must enjoy limited liability and be free from community or worker interference with business judgments. The Lord Proprietors of England's colonial trading corporations said the same things, even boasting that their authority came not from a constitution, but from God. Since the colonists used guns to take land from the Indians, they could easily see the source of that corporate authority was the king's militia. The colonists did not make a revolution over a tax on tea. They fought for many reasons, but chiefly to create a nation where citizens were the government and ruled corporations. So even as Americans were rooting the king's armies, they vouched to put corporations under democratic command. As one revolutionary Thomas Allen said, it concerned the people to see to it that whilst they were fighting against oppression from the king and parliament, that we did not suffer it to rise up in our bowels and to have absurdities rising up amongst ourselves. The victors entrusted the chartering process to each state legislature legislators still have this public trust. Now, the U.S. Constitution makes no mention of corporations, yet the history of constitutional law is, as former Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter said, 
the history of the impact of the modern corporation upon the American scene. Today, business corporations is an artificial creation shielding owners and managers while preserving corporate privileges in existence. Artificial or not, corporations have one more rights under law than people have. Rights which government has protected with armed force. Investment and production decisions that shape our communities and rule over our lives are made in boardrooms, regulatory agencies, and courtrooms. Judges and legislators have made it possible for business to keep decisions about money, production, work, and ownership beyond the reach of democracy. They have created a corporate system under law. This is not what many early Americans had in mind. People were determined to keep investment and production decisions local and democratic. They believed corporations were neither inevitable nor always appropriate. Our history is filled with successful worker-owned enterprises, corporate and neighbor shops. Efficient businesses owned by cities and towns. For a long time, even chartered corporations function well under sovereign citizen control. But while they were weakening charter laws, corporate leaders also were manipulating the legal system to take our property rights. Corporations confronted the law at every point. They hired lawyers and created whole law firms. According to a law professor, Lawrence M. Fredman, they bought and sold governments. Now, in law, property is not merely a piece of land, a house, a bicycle. Property is a bundle of rights. Property law determines who uses those rights. As legal scholar Morris Raphael Coherd said, property is what each of us receive from our work and from the natural resources of the earth. The ownership of land and machinery with the rights of drawn rent, interest, etc., which determine the future distribution of the goods. Under pressure from industrialists and bankers, a handful of 19th century judges gave corporations more rights in property than human beings enjoyed in their persons. Reverend Reverie Ransom, himself once a slave treated as property, was among the many to object, declaring that the rights of men were more sacred than the rights of property. Undeterred by such common sense, judges redefined corporate profits as property. Corporations got courts to assume that huge, wealthy corporations competed on equal terms with neighborhood businesses and with individuals. The courts declared corporate contracts and the rate of return on investment were property that could not be meddled with by citizens or by their elected representatives. Within a few decades, judges redefined the common good to mean corporate use of humans and the earth for maximum production and profit. Workers, cities, and towns, states, and nature were left with fewer and fewer rights corporations were bound to respect. Welding power rights through laws backed by government became an effective, reliable, 
strategy to build and to sustain corporate mastery. Some citizens reacted to this hostile takeover by organizing to maintain the rights over corporations, mobilizing their cities and towns. Citizens pressured legislators to protect states' economic rights for many decades. Others turned to the federal government to guarantee worker and consumer justice, to standardize finance and stock issues, to prevent trusts and monopolies, to protect public health and the environment. The major laws which resulted creating regulatory and managing agencies actually gave corporations great advantage over citizens. Some like the National Labor Relations Act and the National Labor Relations Board intended that the government aid citizens against the corporation. But these laws and agencies were shaped by corporate leaders and then diminished by judges. They either they neither prevented harms nor corrected wrongs nor restored people and places. These regulatory laws were and remain reporting and permitting laws, laws to limit competition and to manage destruction. Congress betraying its obligation to preserve, protect, and defend the U.S. Constitution has been given away citizen sovereignty to EPAs, OSHAs, NLRBs, FTCs, NRCs, SECs, BLMs, RTCs, agency administrators act under the assumption that corporations have prerogatives over labor, investment, and production. They regard land, air, and water as corporations' raw materials and as lawful places to dump corporate poisons. Business leaders and politicians are given license to equate corporations' private goals with the public interest. Regulators and regulatory laws treat labor as a cost and employees as disposable. They equate efficiency and freedom with maximum resource extraction, maximum production, and maximum profits. They shift what had been the corporate burden to prove no harm onto the citizen who must prove harm. Corporations chartered by our states are the cause of political, economic, and ecological injury around the globe. Little wonder so many citizens laymen today as Thomas Paine did 200 years ago. Beneath the shade of our own vines are we attacked in our own house, on our own lands, is the violence committed against us. For 100 years after the American Revolution, citizens and legislators fashioned the nation's economy by directing the chartering process. The laborers, small farmers, traders, artisans, seamists, machinists, and land gentry who sent King George III packing feared corporations. As the pamphleteer Thomas Earl wrote, charter privileges are a burden under which the people of Britain and other European nations groan in misery. They knew that English kings chartered the East India Company, the Hudson Bay Company, and many American colonies in order to control property and commerce. Kings appointed governors and judges, dispatched soldiers, dictated taxes, investments, production, labor, and markets. 
The Royal Charter Crane, Maryland, for example, required that the colonists exports be shipped to or through England. Having thrown off English rule, the revolutionaries did not give governors, judges, or generals authority to charter corporations. Citizens made certain that legislators issued charters, one at a time and for a limited number of years. They kept a tight hold on corporations by spelling out rules each business had to follow, by holding business owners liable for harms or injuries, and by revoking charters. Side by side with these legislative controls, they experimented with various forms of enterprise and finance. Artisans and machinists owned and managed diverse businesses. Farmers and millers organized profitable cooperatives. Shoemakers created incorporated business associations. Joint stock companies were formed. The idea of limited partnerships was imported from France. Land companies used various and complex arrangements and were not incorporated. None of these enterprises had the powers of today's corporations. Towns routinely promoted agriculture and manufacture. They subsidized farmers, public warehouses, and municipal markets, protected watersheds, and discouraged overplanning. State legislatures issued not-for-profit charters to establish universities, libraries, firehouses, churches, charitable associations, along with new towns. Legislatives also chartered profit-making corporations to build turnpikes, canals, and bridges. By the beginning of the 1800s, only some 200 such charters had been granted. Even this handful issued for necessary public works raised many fears. Some citizens argued that under the Constitution, no business could be granted special privileges. Others worried that once incorporates amass wealth, they would control jobs and production, buy the newspapers, dominate elections in the courts, craft and in Industrial workers feared absentee corporate owners would turn them into a commodity being as much as an article of commerce as woolens, cotton, or yarn. Because of the widespread public opposition, early legislators granted very few charters and only after long, hard debate. Legislators usually deny charters to would-be incorporators when communities oppose their prospective business project. Citizens shared the belief that granting charters was an exclusive right. Moreover, as the Supreme Court of Virginia reasoned in 1809, if the applicants of project is merely private or selfish, if it is detrimental to or not promotive of the public good, they have no 
equitable claim upon the legislation for the privileges. Now, citizens governed corporations by detailing rules and operating conditions, not just in the charters, but also in state constitutions and in state laws. Incorporated businesses were prohibited from taking any action, which legislators did not specifically allow. States limited corporate charters to a set number of years. Maryland legislators restricted manufacturing charters to 40 years mining charters to 50 and most others to 30. Pennsylvania limited manufacturing charters to 20 years. Unless a legislative renewed expiring charter, the corporation was dissolved and its assets were divided among shareholders. Citizen authority clauses dictated rules for issuing stocks for shareholder voting for obtaining corporate information for paying dividends and keeping records. They limited capitalization, debit, uh, debts, land holdings, and sometimes profits. They required a company's accounting books to be turned over to a legislative body upon request. The power of large shareholders was limited by scale and voting so that large and small investors had equal voting rights. Interlocking directors were outlined. Shareholders had the right to remove directors at will. Sometimes the rate which railroad, turnpike, and bridge corporations could charge were set by legislators. Some legislation required incorporators to state citizens. Others legislators brought corporate stock in order to stay closely engaged in a firm's operations. Early in the 19th century, the New Jersey legislation declared its right to take over ownership and control of corporate uh, properties. Pennsylvania established a fund from corporate profits, which was used to buy private utilities to make them public. Many states followed suit. Turnpike charters frequently exempted the poor farmers or worshippers from paying tolls. In Massachusetts, the Turnpike Corporation Act of 1805 authorized the legislation to dissolve turnpike corporations when their receipts equaled the cost of construction plus 12%. Then the road became public. In New York, turnpike gates were subject to be thrown open, and the company indicated And fine, if the road is not made and kept easy and safe for public use. Citizens kept banks on particular short leashes. Their charters were limited from three to ten years. Banks had to get legislative approval to increase their capital stock or to merge. Some state laws required banks to make loans for local manufacturing fishing, agriculture, enterprises into the states themselves. Banks were forbidden to engage in trade. Private banking corporations were banned altogether by the Indian Constitution in 1816 and by the Illinois Constitution in 1818. People did not want business owners hiding behind legal shields, but in clear sight. 
that is what they got as the Pennsylvania legislative stated in 1834 a corporation in law is just what the incorporating act makes it it is a creature of the law and may be moldable to any shape or for any purpose that the legislative body may deem most conducive for the general good now in Europe charters protected directors and stockholders from liability for debts and harms caused by their corporations American legislators rejected this corporate shield led by Massachusetts most states refused to grant such protections Bay State Law in 1822 read, Every person who shall become a member of any manufacturing company shall be liable in his individual capacity for all debts contracted during the time of his continuing a member of such corporation. Now, the first constitution in California made each shareholder individually and personally liable for his proportion of all corporate debts and liabilities. Ohio, Missouri, and Arkansas made stockholders liable over and above the stock they actually owned. In 1861, Kansas made stockholders individually liable to an additional amount equal to the stock owned by each share stockholder. Prior to the 1840s, courts generally supported the concept of the incorporate were responsible for corporate debts through the 1870s seven state constitutions made bank shareholders doubly liable shareholders in manufacturing and utility companies were often liable for employee wages liability law sometimes reflected the dominancy of one political party or another in Maine, for example, liability laws changed nine times from no liability to full liability between 1823 and 1857, depending on whether the Whigs or the Democrats controlled the legislative body. Till the Civil War, most states enacted laws holding corporate investors and officials liable, as New Hampshire Governor Henry Hubbard argued in 1842 there is no good reason against this principle in transactions which occur between man and man there exists a direct responsibility and where when capital is concentrated beyond the means of single individuals the liability is continued the penalty for abuse or misuse of the charter was not a plea bargain or a fine, but revoking of the charter and dissolution of the corporation. Citizens believed it was the society's inalienable right to abolish an evil. Revoking clauses or charters were written into the Pennsylvania charters as early as 1781. The first revoking clauses were added to insurance charters in 1809 and to banking charters in 1814. Even when corporations met charter requirements, legislative bodies sometimes decided not to renew those charters. 
states often revoked charters by using quota warrantino. By what authority? Proceedings. In 1815, Massachusetts Justice Joseph Story ruled in Terry versus Taylor, a private corporation created by the legislative branch may lose its franchises by a misuser or non-user of them. This is the common law of the land and is a tactic condition next to the creation of each such corporation. Four years later, the U.S. Supreme Court tried to strip states of this sovereign right. Overruling a lower court, Chief Justice John Marshall wrote in Dothmar College First Woodward that the U.S. Constitution prohibited New Hampshire from revoking a charter granted to the college in 1769 by George, King George III. That charter continued no reservation or revocation clauses, Marshall said. The courts attacked on state sovereignty outraged citizens. Protest pamphlets rolled off the press. Thomas Earl wrote, It is atrocity to have a body of officers whose decisions are for a long time beyond the control of the people. The free men of America ought to ought not to rest contended so long as their Supreme Court is a body of that character. Said Massachusetts legislator David Hershaw, sure I am that if that the American people exquisite in the principles laid down in this case, the Supreme Court will have affected what the whole power of the British Empire after eight years of bloody conflict failed to achieve against our fathers. Opponents of Marshall's decision believed the ruling cut out the heart of state sovereignty. They argued that a corporation's basic right to exist and to wield property powers and rights came from a grant which only the state had the power to make. Therefore, the court exceeded its authority by declaring that corporations are beyond the reach of the legislative branch which created in the first place. People also challenged the Supreme Court decision by discussing between a corporation and an individual's private property. The corporation existed at the pleasure of the legislative branch to serve the common good and was of a public nature. New Hampshire legislators and any other elected state legislators had the absolute legal right to dictate a corporation's property use by amending or repealing its charter. State legislators were stunned by citizen outrage. They were forced to write amending and revoking clauses into new charters, state laws, and constitutions, along with detailed procedures for revocation. In 1825, Pennsylvania legislators adopted board powers to revoke, alter, or annul the charter at any time they thought proper. New York State's 1828 corporation law specified that every charter was subject to alteration or repeal. Section 320 declared that corporate acts not authorized by law were ultra-fires 
or beyond the right of corporations in grounds for charter revocation. The law gave the state authority to secure a temporary injunction to prevent corporations from resisting while legal action to dissolve their charters were underway. Delaware voters passed a constitutional amendment in 1831 eliminating all corporate charters to 20 years. Other states, including Louisiana and Michigan, passed constitutional amendments to place precise time limits on corporate charters. Prison Andrew Jackson enjoyed the wide popular support when he vetoed a law extending the charter of the Second Bank of the United States in 1832. That same year, Pennsylvania revoked the charters of 10 banks. During the 1840s, citizens in New York, Delaware, Michigan, and Florida required a two-thirds vote of their state legislators to create, continue, alter, or renew charters. The New York legislator in 1849 instructed the Attorney General to annul any charter whose applicants had concealed material facts or to sue to revoke a charter on behalf of the people whenever he believed necessary. Voters in Wisconsin and four other states rewrote constitutions so that popular votes had to be taken on every bank charter recommended by their legislators. Rhode Island voters said charters for corporations and banking, mining, manufacturing, and transportation had to be approved by the next elected state legislator before being granted. Over several decades, starting in 1844, 19 states amended their constitutions to make corporate charters subject to alterations or revoking by the legislative body. Rhode Island declared in 1857 the charter or acts of association of every corporation hereafter created may be amended or repealed at the will of the General Assembly. Pennsylvania adopted a constitutional amendment in 1857 instructing legislators to alter, revoke, or alter any charter of a corporation hereafter confirmed, conferred, whenever, in their opinion, it may be injurious to citizens of the community. As late as 1855, citizens had support from the U.S. Con- uh, Supreme Court in Dodger versus Woolsey. The court ruled that the people of the states have not released their powers over the artificial bodies which originate under the legislation of their representatives. Combinations of classes in society united by the bond of a corporate spirit unquestionably desire limitations upon the sovereignty of the people. But the framers of the Constitution were imbued with no desire to call into existence such combinations. So that is a little history about corporate charters. Now, how does that affect me today? Well, today, corporate charters affect you very heavily. But you do have power. So today, corporate charters can be gotten easily by filling out a few forms and by paying modest fees. But what can us people do when it comes to corporate charters? Well, people 
citizens of your state, in all states, continue to have the historical and legal obligation to grant, to amend, and to revoke corporate charters. They are responsible for overseeing corporate activities, but it has been a long time since many legislators have done what they're supposed to do. We need to hold them responsible. Now, in Delaware, Section 284 of the Corporation Law says that the Chesity Court can revoke the charter of any corporation for abuse or misuse of its powers, privileges, or franchises. New York requires dilution when a corporation abuses its power or acts contrary to the public policy of the state. The law calls for a trial jury in charter revocation cases. The Model Business Corporation Act, first written in 1931 by the Committee on Corporate Laws of the American Bars Association and revised twice since, is the basis for chartering laws in more than half the states in the District of Columbia. Although strongly protecting corporate properties, this model law gives courts full power to liquidate the assets of a corporation if they are misapplied or wasted. Now, how does this help me, you ask? Well, under CMS, they are threatened with pool of funds and many health facilities, hospitals, nursing facilities, whether local, county, or state. Just like the states have sued the abiding of the Biden administration for an unlawful, unconstitutional, which was ruled in the Fifth Circuit Court unconstitutional. These mandates and the OSHA regulations, it is upon your company, your employer, to sue the Biden administration. That is not your responsibility. That is theirs. They can't hold or begrudge it against you because their hand is forced by forcing your hand. So you give them an ultimatum of corporate charter or CMS. And in most cases, they will pick corporate charter because it protects them from liability where they can always sue later the federal government for reimbursement or the insurance companies for reimbursement which by the way insurance companies whether Medicaid and Medicare or private does not have the right to dictate over your person's Papers, property, house, and effects. Now, let's go into the Enabling Act. Well, you ask, what is the Enabling Act? Well, 
enable an act in the United States is this. And it means a lot of different things in a lot of different countries, but in our country, the Enable and Act is a statute enacted by the United States Congress authorizing the people of a territory to frame a proposed state constitution as a step towards a mission to the Union. That means you, me, we the people. Now we are going to touch a little bit more on 16 American jurisprudence, which trust me will help you. So here's an example, 16 American jurisprudence, second edition, section 177, late second edition, section 256, the general misconception is that any statute passed by the legislators bearing the appearance of law constitutes the law of the land. The U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land, and any statute to be valid must be in agreement. It is impossible for both the Constitution and a law violating it to be valid. One must prevail. This is stated as the following. The general rule is that an unconstitutional statute, though having the form and name of a law, is in reality no law, but is wholly void and ineffective for any purpose since unconstitutionality dates from the time of its enactment and not merely from the date of the decisions so branding it. An unconstitutional law in legal contemplation is an inoperative as if it had never been passed. Such a statute leaves the question that it purports to settle just as it would be had the statute not been enacted. Since an unconstitutional law is void, the general principles follow that it imposes no duties, confers no rights, creates no office, bestows no power or authority on anyone, affords no protection, and justifies no acts performed under it. A void act cannot be legally consistent with a valid one. An unconstitutional law cannot operate to supersede any existing valid law. Indeed, so far, uh, indeed, insofar as a statute runs counter to the fundamental law of the land, it is superseded thereby. No one is bound to obey an unconstitutional law, and no courts are bound to enforce it. So, the rule in the Second Circuit Court against Healthcare workers trying to claim religious exemption being denied supersedes the First Amendment. It also supersedes the Fourth Amendment. It also supersedes the Fourteenth Amendment, Section 1. Do you see where I'm going with this, people? This is how it's going to help you. Now it goes on to say, 
as our self-appointed rulers, us, we are the kings and queens, not the government. We, us citizens, everyday American citizens, are we the people, not the government. You will pass whatever it is you are going to pass. I, for one, will refuse to comply. That is what you stand. State to them. I have the Constitution, both state and federal, on my side. I am on the right side of history with this. You are on the wrong side of history. Just because you make it a felon out of the citizenry with the stroke of a pen does not mean that the people will comply. Period. Now, if you want to know the affidavit process, the legal affidavit process to give them a respectful notice to cease and desist and further steps if you have to go the route of court, a legal room, courtroom to sue. Study your constitution, your state constitution in and out. Because every state constitution is different. Me, for me, I live in New York. Under Article 1 of the state constitution for New York, Bill of Rights, rights and privileges and franchise secured by the power of those at legislator. Section 3, freedom of worship, religious liberty. Section 11, equal protection of law, discrimination and civil rights prohibited. And there's so much more. Then you've got the federal national constitution. Which, by the way, the first 10 amendments is the Bill of Rights. And those are absolute. They've never been ratified, re-ratified, appealed, revised, revoked, thrown out, they cannot be touched by the government. Those are a list, a bill of rights, a negative bill of rights. It is what is stated that the government cannot do, and that means even the state government. Yes, usually the state government has more power than the federal government, but only in the means of not taking away but adding to the national constitution protect their citizens against the federal government no state constitution or state law can supersede the national constitution and no federal law can supersede the national constitution unless a bill is presented on the floor of the house It passes the House, passes the Senate, and is signed into law. And even then, no revisement to any of the first 10 amendments can happen. They are set in stone, people. Not even the executive branch can trounce or walk over the national constitution at the national level 
That is why the Fifth Circuit Court ruled that Biden's federal mandate was unconstitutional, that the OSHA guidelines and regulations and rules set out was unconstitutional. And this will, I guarantee you, end up in the federal Supreme Court, the highest court of the land. It is over 27 states that have filed lawsuit against the Biden administration. Now, unfortunately, New York has already taken its case to the Second Circuit, but they're appealing it. Some have been thrown to lower levels, back to the original courts. Locally, others are talking about taking it to the federal level. Now, like I said, if you want to know the affidavit process, both a cease and desist friendly warning and to invoke your rights to retract your consent and to take legal standing in a court of law if it gets to that point. Please go to TikTok Stand Up Stand Dot Up America. She's very well versed in the affidavit process. She will give you a breakdown of templates and examples of the affidavit process. That will have to be notarized officially. Also, check out my TikTok, most banned vet underscore 3.0. DM me and I can turn you to other resources. People that are not necessarily given legal advice, but is a lawyer and given general advice and where to go and what steps to take to enact your rights and to revoke your consent and to stand your ground on your constitutional rights and the process that you have to go through for that. And I will turn you to all those resources. There was a nurse in Colorado who was suspended after being accepted of uh, accepting her religious exemption. Lost her job and ended up getting her job back because of this affidavit process. So it has worked. It has worked in school board meetings in Ohio against mass mandates, vaccine mandates. It has worked against non-consensual testing. There are resources out there, people. And this was the podcast, 1776, Time to Rise Again, Patriots. And again, I'm your host, Piss Vet. Until next time, Godspeed, good health, safety for you and your families, and God bless the United States of America. Until next time.
you feel like you're being censored, your voice is not being heard, you're being smothered out by cancel culture, banned from other platforms, from speaking your truth. Have you heard of Anchor? It's a free podcast app. Everything at your disposal, down to editing, background music, cover art. It can't get any easier than Anchor. And it's easier to distribute on other platforms like Spotify, Google Podcasts, and much more. Look into Anchor today at anchor.fm. Be heard. Speak loudly. Claim the radio waves again because they're ours to claim. And let your voice be heard.